0: Hey, everyone. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, this episode all about deliberate practice. It's something I am very uh, interested in. It's something that I think has helped me uh, excel in my career. And uh, the Gold Method app that I developed is something that I think that helps me to practice deliberately with much more ease and effectiveness. So if you hear this episode and you are interested in trying to use the Gold Method app to try these types of ideas out, I will leave a link in the description and you can check that out and see what the Gold Method does for your ability to practice deliberately. Uh, The first month is free for all of you who haven't used it and there's no credit card required. So uh, go ahead and check that out. The link in the description and I hope you enjoy. I also want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making, but needing to rent or buy to try things out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you live outside the US, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. I actually did a video with one of their co-owners, Derek Wright, uh, with a virtual equipment consultation, so I'm going to leave that link in the bio as well, and you can check that out if you're interested. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today we are going to be talking about deliberate practice. Uh, deliberate practice is basically the best way to get better at anything that we do. And uh, I think it's one of the most important episodes that I'm ever going to make. I've made a lot of these episodes of me discussing certain things and certain books I've read. Um, but this one, I believe, will be the arguably the most important. I want to give a little bit of backstory to how I became aware of this uh and why i care so much about it and then we'll get into the actual discussion of deliberate practice so as many of you know uh i developed this gold method approach to practice organization and i just was thinking it was so awesome and there's so much about it that's so great and um i was getting a lot better when i was practicing i could see the progress in my playing it was exciting And I would share with other people and I would sort of work with clients and other people and say, here is how you do this. Here's how you organize your practice. If you do things this way, you're going to get a lot better at your instrument. Well, what I didn't understand at that point in time is I understood how to practice deliberately, even though I didn't understand it to be in that exact language. And so the way I was using the gold method was maybe a way that other people were not using it because I did not explain how you practice, how you go about using the information you get in your practice sessions to drive improvement and because I didn't have that language, I was just sort of either hoping or relying or assuming that people who would use the Gold Method programs, like the Gold Method app and things like that, would just automatically know how to do that. Uh, I was very fortunate to work with uh, people who had jobs or uh, who were doing well. And so they could bring their own practicing approach to the table. And so it it seemed like everything was working in the beginning, um, and so I didn't necessarily consider things about deliberate practice right out of the gate. but as I would continue to share things and I would continue to hear back from people, uh, it would become more and more clear to me that uh, we could call it, we could say that the gold method is necessary but not sufficient. I think it's necessary for, um, what's an efficient and effective practice. I think it's necessary to be able to organize your work, to understand how you're going to work on certain things and how you're going to structure it to reach your goals. But it's not sufficient in and of itself. Just going through the motions of the gold method programs and things like that is not sufficient. And I I, I became aware of this first in a discussion I had with my friend Jason Haheim on the podcast forever ago. I don't even know. It's a long time ago at this point. And then just through continued, we sort of have stayed in touch over time and through continued discussions with him, he has uh, sort of convinced me <laughs> that it's an important component and that I have to talk about it. And so the very, fir- the very next thing I did was uh, I had already heard about Anders Ericsson through The Talent Code and through another book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which I covered here on the podcast before. Anders Ericsson is credited uh, as as basically coining the term deliberate practice. It's his and a few other researchers. uh, It's their theoretical framework um, that they worked with and that they shared. And it's incredibly compelling to read his work and to see what the scope uh, of possibility is for what he thinks uh, deliberate practice can do. It's basically the way to unlock anything that you want to learn how to do. And so... We don't, that's kind of my sort of journey to understanding that I have to talk about this because if I don't talk about this, I'm leaving parts of uh, what makes me successful on the table. And so I'm going to try my best to explain it. I'm going to try my best to explain it in terms of the gold method and things like that so that we get a big picture view of uh, how deliberate practice uh, is involved and how it guides and how it defines our practice. So, Anders Ericsson wrote a paper along with a few other researchers in 1993 called The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. I'm looking at it right here. I found it online. Um, So uh, you could find it and read it for yourself. It's very difficult kind of to read because it's a scientific paper. Uh, It's kind of crazy to me, actually, if you would have told my, if you told me 10 years ago that you would be willingly reading a scientific paper on deliberate practice, I would have thought you were crazy, but here we are. So all all of this for Anders Ericsson seems to have started with trying to understand expert performance. And expert performance and explaining why some people seem to be really great at something while other people don't seem to uh, develop that much skill has been studied for a very, very long time. And at the beginning, they thought maybe like, this, you know, the universe has given this person, or maybe God has gifted this person with this, or it has to do with, you know, certain, it's just basically a genetic component or some sort of special innate thing about this person. And they have it, and we don't have it. And so it seems like from the very beginning, there have been a lot of the research has been on trying to understand the genetic components. Of what makes someone special, uh, because it seems I don't know, I've read a lot of books, and it just seems like these books are saying our world likes the story of this person uh, is so good, they can't be ignored, and they just had this thing, and I don't have this thing. And I'm not I'm not out here to try to say that we use it as an excuse to not work hard, but it, it becomes easier when we say this person has something that I don't have and that's why they're good. Now, this person practiced deliberately for more than 10 years and didn't stop and continue learning and that's why they're great because that's something we all have the ability to do. And so, excuse me. I I want to that's why I want to address this because he basically came to the conclusion that there are certain physical characteristics and genetic components that do play a role, right? I'm never going to be a professional basketball player because I'm 5 foot 11 right? I'm never going to be a professional football player because I'm not very fast. I'm not very, you know, this is like, there are certain things I'm never going to be able to do physically, I don't want to say never like I couldn't get better, but I'm just never going to be at that elite level at this stage because of certain genetic components, and that's fine. Uh, But he also did then look at something like IQ, which we all view as this, and it is more or less this thing that's like this is your IQ. And IQ tests were originally developed to understand where certain kids would have deficiencies so they could get more help. It was never meant to be like a this defines you for the rest of your life. Rather, it was just, where are you right now? So we can get you the kind of help that you need. And so they look to see um, how does IQ help expert performance? And just reading right here from the paper, it says the relationship or the relation of IQ to exceptional performance is rather weak in many domains, including music and chess. So they found that although some innate characteristics, especially physical characteristics uh, from a genetic point of view, can make a difference in expert performance, many, especially mental things, uh, don't uh, seem to have a correlation. And so he goes on to then talk about how basically acquiring skills um, and knowledge that's how we become experts. And so uh, the next part of this paper, there's a section called "Does Practice and Expert Experience Inevitably Lead to Maximal Performance?" and this is the idea that will you just become an expert if you do something long enough? And the answer is no. Um, they did a study on um, they did a study on Morse code operators and found that they would experience these plateaus, and they thought, okay, well, experiencing a plateau while learning must just be part of the process, like you're going to hit a plateau. But it, it, right here, it reads that they their studies later showed that these plateaus in Morse code reception were not an inevitable characteristic of skill acquisition, but could be avoided by different and better training methods. So this introduces the idea that if we're experiencing plateaus, it's not just like a, oh, well, that just happened. It means we need to look at the way we're approaching something and see if we can find a different or a better way to overcome the plateau. And so, um, you know, it goes on and then he eventually comes to, I love this sentence. It says, in some, the belief that a sufficient amount of experience or practice leads to a maximal performance or leads to maximal performance appears incorrect. So he's basically saying here that if you do something for a very long time, it does not automatically mean that you will become an expert at it. And there's all sorts of studies done talking about, there's one that I talked about in the deliberate practice episode about chess players and how they studied a group of chess players uh, that had, I think it was 10,000 hours or maybe they did it for 10 years. And they saw that some became grandmasters and some sort of stayed at an intermediate or a novice level. And they're trying to figure out why. And it's the way that they approach their work. So- This is important. And then so he says here later, so what is it then? What's the difference? If it's not just how long someone has done it, what's the difference? And it says here, our review has also shown that the maximal level of performance for individuals in a given domain is not attained automatically as a function of extended experience, but the level of performance can be increased even by highly experienced individuals as a result of deliberate efforts to improve. So that's the difference. It's even in highly experienced people, even in people who do what they do well, you can continue to improve as a result of deliberate efforts to improve. And it's interesting here where he talks about practice, as he writes here, we uh the relationship between acquired performance and the amount of practice and experience was found to be weak to moderate in earlier review. And we propose that the reason for this comparatively relate comparatively weak relation is that the current definition of practice is vague. I find this to be awesome because he's going to go on to define uh, traits or characteristics of deliberate practice as a way to define effective practice. So, if we go into the practice room and our practice is not defined by some of these characteristics or some of these traits, which we'll talk about in a little bit, then we can say that we're doing something, but we are not practicing deliberately. All right? And so, here in this paper, he writes the characteristics. Um, So he writes, the the most cited condition concerns the subject's motivation to attend to the task and to exert effort to improve their performance. So you have to have motivation to practice deliberately. In addition, the design of the task should take into account the pre-existing knowledge of the learner so the task can be correctly understood after a brief period of instructions. The subject should receive immediate informative feedback and knowledge of the results of their performance. The subject should repeatedly perform the same or similar tasks. When these conditions are met, practice improves accuracy and speed of performance on cognitive, perceptual, and motor tasks. When these conditions are met. So not if you just go into the practice room and just go through the motions and just play, will you get better? But when these conditions of understanding what you're struggling with, having something that is designed to help you get a little bit better, knowing how you're gonna get better, getting feedback on whether you are getting better, and doing this repeatedly will make you better. And it's like a little bit later down in the paper, I highlighted this. He says, in the absence of adequate feedback, efficient learning is impossible and improvement is only minimal, even for highly motivated subjects. I'm going to read that again. In the absence of adequate feedback, efficient learning is impossible and improvement only minimal, even for highly motivated subjects. I think that's incredible, and we should all consider what that means in our own practice. I, when I read that, I was, I was pretty, I guess, humbled. You know, I don't often record myself. I mean, I do for social media purposes and things like that, but I'm not necessarily doing it for feedback, other than okay, what's the result of this process? But from reading this and reading the book Peak that we're going to discuss in a second, um, I really got to a place where I was like, I have to incorporate. Practice or uh, recording into my practice. That's one of the best ways to get feedback. For anyone with a teacher, that is the best way to get feedback. And that's why we have teachers. But for someone like me who doesn't regularly have someone watching over me and coaching me and helping me learn, uh, recording myself is by far the best way to get feedback. And there's other ways to get feedback too, but these are the most effective ones. All right. So we just kind of continue on and Um, He provides a theoretical framework for the acquisition of expert performance. I I just love that because in 1993, he wrote a paper on deliberate practice and called it a theoretical framework. It wasn't as proven as he would have liked it to have been, but I love that he just put it out there with the idea that somebody would come a hold of it and try these ideas out. So the last part of this paper I want to go over, and then I'm going to go into the book Peak, and we're going to talk about what deliberate practice is and why you should care about it is there's there's it says here consider three general types of activities namely work play and deliberate practice work involves public performance competitions services rendered for pay and other activities directly motivated by external rewards play includes activities that have no explicit goal and that are inherently enjoyable Deliberate practice includes activities that have been specifically or specially designed to improve the current level of performance. The co- the goals, costs and rewards of these three types of activities differ as does the frequency with which individuals pursue them. All right, I'm going to just try to summarize this because this is an important distinction. Work is externally motivated. When I go to work, I'm motivated by trying to do a good job. Hopefully, my boss is happy with me, the conductor. Obviously, I want to do a good job for my colleagues and be a good, you know, be someone who's trying to uh, meet the standard of those that are around me. I'm motivated by the money that I'm making to make sure that I'm doing a good job. And I obviously don't want to lose my job or anything like that because then you lose, you know, income and that's not good. So we're motivated by external things. You can have some internal motivation with that, but generally, Speaking, we're motivated externally. Competitions are. We want to win the competition. Things like this. Play when play is like what my children do. There's no inherent. Uh, there's no inherent thing that they get out of it. It's just enjoyable to engage with it. And you hear people talk a lot about. At least I hear people talking a lot about play now of how we need to incorporate play into what we do and. It's a part of you know taking care of ourselves and it's a part of resting. I can't disagree with this. I would just be careful that we don't view our practice sessions as play because there's, as we'll talk about with deliberate practice in just a second, the goal of play is that it is enjoyable and that's it. With deliberate practice, the goal, it says here, individuals are motivated to practice because practice Improves performance. Deliberate, in contrast to play, deliberate practice is a highly structured activity, the explicit goal of which is to improve performance. Specific tasks are invented to overcome weaknesses, and performance is carefully monitored to provide cues for ways to improve it further. So I'm not saying our practice should never be enjoyable, but he'll describe in this and in the book Peak. That deliberate practice in and of itself is not inherently enjoyable, but it is the best way to improve. So we have to understand this, that when we walk into a practice session, if we want to reach any kind of goal that we have, if we want to play a piece well, if we want to win an audition, we want to you know, just have a successful outcome – Deliberate practice is going to be involved, and if enjoying the experience of practicing is the first and foremost goal, it's going to be hard hard pressed for that to be characterized by deliberate practice. I just want to put that out there because I think it's very, very important that we sort of at least acknowledge that um, if everything is everything's about having fun, um, it's hard to track progress I think and that's what he's arguing here with this with this paper on deliberate practice. So I think I've made a sort of roundabout point so I want to about why deliberate practice is important but I want to just take a second and discuss why I think it's important in a more direct manner. I think it's important because if you understand how to practice deliberately you can more or less do anything that you want. I've done a lot of listening to the Huberman Lab on neuroplasticity. And he talks a lot about how from age zero to age 25, our brains are incredibly plastic. We can learn things, we can assimilate information, and oftentimes in a passive way where we're not actively saying, I got to learn this just by interacting with the material enough, we can do that. After age 25, the plasticity starts to fall away a little bit. And it's not that we can't have brain plasticity or neuroplasticity, that just means the brain can change. That's and rewire itself. That's what plasticity means. If you aren't aware, uh, what it means is that we have to be more deliberate in our efforts. So someone like me, I can get a lot better. We will never reach a stage where we hit this plateau, generally speaking. I mean, maybe physically I'm going to hit a point where I can't bench press any more weight. Um, but most of us are not even close to that point. But we experience these plateaus, and it's because of what I read earlier, it's because we may not be using the best methods or the most effective methods to be able to move forward. And so we sometimes place limiting beliefs on ourselves based on the evidence that we have of what we have been able to do or what we can't do in the past, and those begin to define us now. And deliberate practice is the way through that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of Anders Ericsson it's a way that we can focus not so much on what we are or are not capable of, but rather we can focus on where we want to be and to develop a system of getting feedback to track if we're headed in that direction. And if we're not, how do we get information that will help us move in that direction? So essentially we could call it self-actualization. We could call it reaching your goals, but deliberate practice is the way to get where you want to go the most in efi- the most efficient and the most effective way. And so these are the, I would say to a greater extent, there are many um, many like when you take lessons with teachers, uh, you're learning deliberate practice, but you may not think of it that way. And and teachers are always trying to help us analyze what's going on and be able to deal with it. So what I want to try to do here is I want to try to give some language that might help all of us be able to understand exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it, especially related to musicians. That's why I'm trying to translate this for musicians, so that when we go in the practice room, we get feedback from teachers, we understand what to do with it all right so we start with uh the idea again we just want to make sure that the work we're doing has purpose and purpose is a, what's the goal are we moving towards the goal are we making sure we understand like how to move towards the goal for now we just covered that this is just in opposition to the idea that if i just do something i'll get better that may be true to a point but you're more or less going to hit a plateau at some particular stage. And so maybe you're fine with that. Maybe you're like, you know, I don't really want to like try that hard and that deliberately. And when I hit a plateau, I'll figure it out. Or you could be someone that says, well, if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm probably going to hit a plateau. Maybe it's worth my time now to figure some things out so that I don't hit a plateau later and I don't have to deal with that. And then especially for all of you listening that have teachers You know, you'll never have a feedback system like your teacher ever again. And so understanding how to maximize and really get out of your lessons what you can, I think is so important because unless you want to spend a ton of money after you graduate to go fly around or take Zoom lessons with people or whatever, like understanding how to maximize your time with your teacher is going to be useful. So how do we do that? Deliberate practice has two components. There are mental representations, and then there are the actual process of structuring your work in a way that deliberate practice will be defined by deliberate practice. So I'm looking here real fast. Um, Where is it? Um, The gold standard. He, He has a section here in this book. I should have found it ahead of time. Well, we'll talk about mental representations first until I find it. Mental representations are what separates expert-level performers from people that are not. Mental representations take the place of IQ. It's what makes someone able to look at a chessboard and understand what's going on with only looking at it for five seconds. If I looked at a chess, any chessboard, if I looked at it it would just look like a collection of random pieces. But to someone who is a grandmaster in chess, it's not a random collection of piece, of chess pieces. Rather, there is a certain move set that would have gotten you there. There's moves that you would do after that. And so this is how they're able to, he, he talks a lot about in Peak, there's a, he talks a lot about chess. He talks about blind chess, where people have such a mental representation that they can actually play multiple games at once without even looking at the board. But this isn't necessarily because they're so much smarter than all the rest of us, but rather they have just engaged with learning chess in a deliberate way that built what's called a mental representation so that they can follow along, see what's going on. We do the same thing with music. When someone who doesn't know anything about music looks at a sheet of music, it looks like a random collection of black dots and staves and lines right but for those of us that have pursued music for a length of time the like those random markings begin to take on the shape of what will turn into music like we understand a g a whole note g in a staff at forte means some sound so we have a mental representation of what that is and so we begin to say oh i understand if this is written here it actually means something else And then we begin to learn how to translate that on our individual instruments. So then what happens is when you have somebody who is an incredible performer, it's not that they have something that the rest of us don't have. It's that the work that they have done with various teachers and in getting feedback and the experiences they've had in their career have brought them to a place where they have a mental representation that is complex enough to be able to allow them to demonstrate it while performing. If you think about, I mean, a classic example would be someone like Bud Herseth. Everyone talked about him as a storyteller. So Bud, his mental representation, what the sound he heard in his head, although I think it's more complex than that, but that's sort of in a basic way. The sound he heard in his head was so complex and it was so engaging that when he took a breath and he played, that mental representation came out. He also had the skills to be able to consistently produce that mental representation. We will talk about that in a second. Um, But I hope this makes sense. Like We need to understand mental representations of expert performers so we can begin to implement them into our own practice. So this is something I'm really interested in now. I'm trying to figure out how can I share what my mental representation is? Not just how do I play and then someone try to copy me, but can I share my mental representation and how I'm creating what I'm doing and then play? Do you see what the difference would be? If I share this is exactly how I'm doing what I'm doing we find an exercise or something that's appropriate to the player's uh, ability level. And then I play. Not only do does the player hear what I'm doing in terms of my playing, but can also connect it to how I'm doing it through being able to verbalize my mental model or my mental representation. Now, some people would think, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, we don't need to do that. Um, like, people should just listen to it and... Um, you know we should do it all through modeling, which I totally agree with but I want to um, I want to read this section from the book Peak. Um, he's talking about how um, the the implications of deliberate practice and he's talking about with uh, athletes and musicians and other expert performers we would benefit the most because we're always trying to get a little bit better not every field, or discipline in life, or people trying to actively push their skills. So he's studied a lot of athletes, musicians, chess players, things like that. And he's talking about mental representations. This is on page 248 in Peak. He says, furthermore, very little has been done to learn about the mental representations that successful athletes use. The ideal approach to fixing this would be to have athletes verbally report their thinking while they are performing which would make it possible for researchers, coaches, or perhaps even the athletes themselves to design training tasks to improve their representations of game situations in the same way we described in Chapter 3, which is the chapter on mental representations. There are, of course, some elite athletes who develop effective representations by themselves, but most of these top players are not even aware of how their thinking differs from those less accomplished, and can the converse is often true as well that the less accomplished athletes don't understand how much weaker their mental representations are than those of the best in their sport the way i have tried the way that this is sort of sat with me is that should be my goal if i want to play like hokan hardenberger i got to figure out what is hokan hardenberger doing now i don't have the opportunity to talk to him and so I can't have him verbalize it to me. So this is where I've sort of talked about in the past of, well, I got to make my best guess about what's going on and try to figure out how he's doing what he's doing, especially related to something I may struggle with, right? Or whatever whatever part of his playing or some other great performer's playing that I want to steal, as Barbara would say, I got to figure out what is going on so that it's something I can focus on implementing. And so I think trying to verbalize it, although it seems like it could be a um, unnecessary step. I mean, I kind of agree with uh, Erickson here that we could study it. We could figure out, okay, this is what's going on and you know, just X expert performer's head. You know, there's so many different and, and obviously someone like, it's interesting. I'm, I, I could think about Chris Martin or Sean Jones or Winton or, you know, someone like Ingrid Jensen, or uh, these are all trumpet players for those non-trumpet players, or, you know, uh, Mary Bowden, or um, Tom Hooten, or, you know, Stuart Stevenson. Like, we have all these players, right? And they all sound different. Uh, but there are probably some commonalities between them that they all... And, like, h- how would they... How would these individuals describe what they do? And is there any of that that we can take and begin to say, okay, they focus on this. I'm going to try to focus on that same thing. Now... I think in teaching, this already exists. I'm not trying to say that teachers aren't doing this. I, what I'm trying to say is that we, sh- especially us students who are trying to get better should understand it in the context of I'm developing my mental representation. It's not enough just to go through the motions, I think, and say, well, this is what my teacher told me to focus on. This is how they played. I'm just going to go do it. But rather to say... I wanted the the purpose of all of this is for me to develop my mental representation. And I need to get feedback on how I'm doing, which is again recording or my teacher telling me how I'm doing. Like I think that language matters. And so some may think I'm overcomplicating it, but I really think that I've seen progress in my own playing, even at the level that I'm at, through trying to figure out what's Hokan's mental representation for how he produces sound. And I've been able to try to incorporate that kind of thing into my own playing with great success. I'm a significantly more consistent and accurate player than I was a year and a half ago, two years ago, when I started to try to do this. So this is why I think this is important. And so uh, in terms of actually incorporating it into your practicing, this is what I believe our fundamentals work is designed to do. We have various exercises to develop our sound or articulation, our ability to get around our instrument. We have scales, we have arpeggios, we have um, other types of technical exercises. We have lyric etudes, we have technical etudes. We have ones that are kind of crazy and all over the place. All of these things serve to help, they are examples of music that serve to help us develop and ingrain a certain mental representation. And so combining this discussion with the one we had at the beginning, just going through the motions of playing certain exercises does not inherently mean you will improve your mental representation. This is basically saying going through the motions of practicing will not make you a better player just because. And so we have to go into the practice sessions with the knowledge that I can't just go through the motions, I need to know what I'm doing and part of that is I need a clear version of success, a clear version of a mental representation that I am trying to create. So then when I get feedback, I understand when I'm doing it well and where the errors are. If you listen to Andrew Huberman talk about neuroplasticity, the errors are the things that cue to our brain that we need to change, that we need to learn. It's when our brains are most likely to be ready to change. But if we can't define an error because we can't define success, I think it's a far less effective process. So we're going to leave that right there for mental representations. Uh, the, again, the, the main takeaway is that the difference between expert performers beyond the time that they've spent doing it is their mental representations. It's not necessarily that they have something that uh, non expert performers don't have. It's just that they have a more complex and complete picture in their head of what they are trying to accomplish. And they spent a lot of time in the practice room, a lot of time, you know, more than 10 years in the practice room, slowly chipping away at bringing that mental representation forward and slowly honing and refining it. Obviously, the process of deliberate practice is not only to say, I have this mental representation. But we actually, what we're about to talk about, it the process of deliberately pract- or practicing deliberately actually serves to inform and refine our mental representation. So it actually kind of acts as like, a, if you want to say a continuum or a circle, it doesn't stop. One doesn't necessarily lead to the other. They both lead to each other. So a main goal of our work should be the informing and refining of our mental representations for whatever it is that we're doing and We do that, I think, most effectively through our fundamentals work. You can develop a mental representation of a piece of music, but that should be, to the way that I understand things, we want to say, here's an excerpt, pictures at an exhibition. When I work on pictures at an exhibition, I'm trying to work on the mental representation of pictures, not of my articulation. Your articulation will be involved in bringing forth an accurate mental representation of that. But in my... Estimation, this is not necessarily the most effective place to develop it, and the reason why is because not all repertoire is suited for our particular difficulty level. With fundamental exercises, we can assign anything, change anything in any way we need to to uh, be, be very specifically, um, I guess, designed or attuned to what our particular needs are. And I think that's why it matters. And then we apply this knowledge. We apply these mental representations we build of these skills to the music that we are practicing. That's my take on it. I'm happy to have discussions with people who maybe think differently and we can kind of unpack that. Again, this is just me sharing what I've learned about deliberate practice uh, and trying to draw some logical conclusions from it. All right. So mental representations is half the picture. We got to be able to do that. We have to be able to do work that builds the mental representation. The actually the the actual final thing is again we need to do it for our production of our instruments to have an idea of when I take a breath and I play or when I draw my bow for you know stringed instruments or I, I'm about to strike uh the you know the percussion instrument. What am I trying to do? How will I create the sound that I want to create? but you can't really divorce it from the music. The music is gonna dictate what sound comes. So not only do we need the ability to have a wide variety of things like articulations, or again, the ability to get around our instruments with ease, but then we need to also to be developing our musical mental representation. That's developed through through modeling, that's developed through tons and tons of listening, playing with others. A lot of it for me was developed on the job, actually on the job in the orchestra. And both of these mental representations will serve each other, but they sort of, both of them, we need a picture for each one of these things. So for example, when I'm playing picture at an exhibition, I I know how I'm going to breathe and I know how I'm going to release to create the sound. I have confidence in my ability to do that consistently. So I have a, like in terms of production, I have an idea of what it should feel like and what it should sound like to be successful. Obviously that's going to, again, be dictated by the music. But then on top of that, how am I going to group things so that the phrasing comes through? You know, how does the articulation change? How do I make the character? Do I know what the character is? Again, these both of these things serve each other. So you could just say it's all one big mental representation. And I think you would be accurate. But you could also think of them as two separate things that serve each other. And I think that would be accurate as well. All right, moving on. So sorry for that. Uh, hopefully that all makes sense. It's kind of a, a dense thing. And I'm just trying to share it to try to honestly work through some of it myself. So in the chapter the gold standard, he goes over the character the principles of deliberate practice. So principles are important for our practice because they are true no matter what. The, the way that they are t- are carried out in our practice looks different, but the principles are what matter. So the principles of the goal method, your practice must be goal-oriented, your practice must have an optimal starting place, your practice must have a logical progression, your practice should have a defined time frame. These principles should be true in your practice. There should be elements of these principles. Whether or not you practice the same way I practice and the application of them is less important than that you have a goal that you have an optimal starting place to establish healthy skill at some point that you have a logical progression that makes it so you can maintain that skill that you have developed rather than just moving too fast and being frustrated managing the sort of the skill challenge curve as it could be called and then the defined time frame of how are you going how long are you going to pursue how how deep are you going to dig before pursuing a different thing so the principles of deliberate practice are first it requires a field that is already reasonably well developed that is a field in which best performers have attained a level of performance that clearly sets them apart from people who are just entering the the field and he says we're referring to activities like musical performance obviously he's basically just saying we can see we can look at people who do things at a high level and we can see that that exists and that is required because if we didn't have that then there would be sort of no thing that we were trying to pursue. There would be no, like, objective objective metrics or thing that we would be striving to reach. We would all sort of just be doing, doing our thing. Um, second, deliberate practice requires a teacher who can provide practice activities designed to help a student improve his or her performance. All right? Does that make sense? So... There's got to be experts in a field for effective deliberate practice. And in the book, he he, he talks about how to take the principles and apply them to things that may not apply in this exact way. But for music performance, it does. So we've got that covered. And then second, there needs to be a teacher. Now, this is important because most of us at some point in time had a teacher. But if we don't have these certain things instilled by the time we have left a teacher we may not be done needing a teacher. I hope that makes sense. All right, and then he says here, um, in short, deliberate practice is characterized by the following traits. So those two principles, here are some traits. Deliberate practice develops skills that other people have already figured out how to do and for which effective training techniques have been established. People have already figured out how to play instruments at a high level, so deliberate practice seeks to be able to go through that process. Deliberate practice takes place outside of one's comfort zone and requires a student to constantly try things that are just beyond his or her current abilities. Thus, it demands near maximal effort, which is generally not enjoyable. We talked about that. So we want to be pushing ourselves. If we sort of stay in this area where everything we play feels good, it sounds good. I mean, there's there's some there's some there's a time and a place for that. It's not that our practice should always be frustrating and hard, but deliberate practice is characterized by taking place outside of one's comfort zone. Okay? We're looking for deliberate practice. We're not saying that if you don't practice, like you can choose not to practice deliberately. It's fine. It's just saying deliberate practice is the best way to uh, track and monitor and see progress. And so this is what we need to have in order to engage with deliberate practice. Deliberate practice involves well-defined specific goals and often involves improving some aspect of the target performance. It is not aimed at some vague overall improvement. Once an overall goal has been set, a teacher or coach will develop a plan for making a series of small changes that will add up to the desired larger change. Improving some aspect of the target performance allows a performer to see that his or her performance have been improved by the training. So we get the goals and then we design a routine. This is the goal method that will help us be able to um, see that progress. And we want to make a series of small changes that will add up to the desired larger changes. This is why the defined time frame part of the goal method is important. We, got, we understand that we're not going to see all of the progress in one day. So rather, we're going to chip away at it day by day that we see the larger progress over the long term. The next one, deliberate practice is deliberate. <laughs> that is, it requires a person's full attention and conscious action. It isn't simply enough to follow a teacher or coach's directions. The student must concentrate on the specific goal for his or her practice activity so the adjustments can be made to control practice. This is pretty self-explanatory, all right? It's not enough to go through the motions. We have to be focused on what the goal is, how we're going to go about addressing the goal, and to keep our focus and concentration high while working. Again, this is what characterizes deliberate practice. Do you have to be maximally focused and concentrated every second of your practice session? No, not at all. But if you are engaging with deliberate practice, it's kind of a requirement. Deliberate practice involves feedback and modification of efforts in response to that feedback. Early in the training process, much of that feedback will come from the teacher or coach who will monitor progress, point out problems, and offer ways to address those problems. With time and experience, students must learn to monitor themselves, spot mistakes, and adjust accordingly. Such self-monitoring requires effective mental representations. So when we first start something, we don't have effective mental representations. Our teachers are the ones that help us to establish whatever mental representation is appropriate at the time designs a routine that will help us begin to uh, bring that mental representation to life more and more and more with more and more consistency. We have feedback that helps us see when we're not getting the, the mental representation or we're not bringing it to life so that we can make a correction that we need to make, thus making sure that we're always trying to course correct ourselves to the mental representation As our mental representations become more and more effective, we gain the ability to self-monitor through recording or other types of feedback where we may not need a teacher as often because our our mental representations are uh, effective or, or complex enough that we can monitor ourselves. And so in school, you're basically trying to do a little bit of both, but all of my teachers have encouraged me to record and I didn't do it nearly as much as they told me to but i understand now if i would have done that i would have been gaining the ability to do this for myself when i left it would have helped me with that feeling of i'm lost i don't know what's going on and so with the gold method if you're someone who's using the app or you've thought about using the app you know we have specific repetitions that are designed you know, you have four repetitions for a section or you have two or something like that. Well, you can specifically say, I'm going to record the first repetition of everything that I do. All of a sudden, it's just programmed in. There's no more resistance. There's no more, how do I do this or how should I do this? It's just... This is what I'm doing because that's what's designed. I think structure can make things like playing slower easier, can make things like recording yourself, basically all the things that we know we should do, but we don't necessarily want to do. Building it into a program is one very effective way to make sure we don't skip over it. All right. Deliberate practice. Next one. Deliberate practice both produces and depends on effective mental representations. Improving performance goes hand-in-hand with improving mental representations. As one's performance improves, the representations become more detailed and effective, in turn making it possible to improve even more. Mental representations make it possible to monitor how one is doing, both in practice and in actual performance. They show the right way to do something and allow one to notice when something is doing something wrong and to correct it. So these mental representations that we build uh, are they inform deliberate practice and are improved by deliberate practice. So when you like you know this is how this is how you can get to a point as a performer and you know like as an quote expert performer um, where you can begin to monitor yourself as you're playing. Like you may not necessarily be able to. This is a mistake I've made in the past and I feel like I can kind of finally understand how to articulate it. When I would practice, I have a very high level of awareness of my playing and what I sound like, and I thought that was sufficient for improvement. What I didn't understand is, yes, it's wonderful that I have this high level of awareness of my mental representations and what I'm trying to do. I can use that to help keep myself on track while performing, but if I want to see actual improvement, it's not it's not effective enough. It's not going to give me accurate feedback because it's me on this side of the bell. It's me trying to listen while I'm trying to create. And so I got that mixed up. I just thought somehow, and I mean, to be truthful about it, this is not, This is not. Um, it's embarrassing or kind of humiliating to admit this, but I just thought I didn't have to do that. I just thought, My ear is very good. I can get away without recording myself or this is good enough for me because I got a job. And so like, it's fine. But as I'm trying to actually drive growth, I'm seeing that recording myself is actually the way to get actual feedback and to actually see what I sound like. Again, we build these effective mental representations and in performance, while we're not recording, while we are creating, so we're not recording, we are actually creating We can use these mental representations to help ensure better performance because it's helping us keep on track of what we know makes us successful, but it's not the same thing as improving. I hope that point makes sense. The final point I want to go over here, and then we'll talk about just a few few final things and then I'll wrap up. But uh, deliberate practice nearly always involves building or modifying previously acquired skills by focusing on particular aspects of those skills and working to improve them specifically. Over time, this step-by-step improvement will eventually lead to expert performance. So all this is saying is it's just a cumulative effect, right? We practice something and we have these skills that we've established and we're going to continue to build on those. Maybe some habits we had previously uh, will lead to quote undo or or not, but it's always this cumulative effect and this building block type approach is what's going to get us to be an expert. Not some magical, like innate ability, not some crazy amount of natural talent, but rather deliberate practice over the long run. He finishes this point by writing, because of the way that new skills are built on top of existing skills, it is important for teachers to provide beginners with the correct fundamental skills in order to minimize the chances that the student will have to relearn those fundamental skills later when at a more advanced level. So this is a two-pronged thing here. Number one, he points this at the teachers to make sure we are all aware of the sk- fundamental skills that we are trying to establish with people and making sure that they are healthy and good and quote correct as to make it so later on we don't have to undo things. But I will say there's a student's responsibility in here as well to do what these teachers are telling you to do, because if you sort of do the fundamental skills that your teacher is trying to help you establish, but you don't really like be diligent or very careful in the way that you do it, they could be trying to set up a fundamental base for you to enjoy forever. But if you don't actually establish it because um, you're not as focused as you need to be in getting feedback, then you're going to have to undo so much of that work, which will be very, very frustrating. And some of us have had to do it. It's not it's not like a, a death sentence, so to speak, for your career, but it would be obviously we can all agree it would be better if we didn't have to do that. So I think both sides just have a responsibility to make sure that we are um, providing the very best that we can, and then also that we are uh, being as careful and as diligent as possible with the information that's been given excuse me. So those are the traits of deliberate practice. Now again, I want to emphasize this because I'm just trying to address this point that's that people, you know, people talk about being burnt out. It's like I you know, I practice so much and I care so much and I work so hard And I got to this point where I was burnt out and then all I really needed to do was just like take a day off or I needed to like have a day or a few days where I just played something and it was fun and I enjoyed it to remind myself of why I played the instrument. I don't disagree with this at all. I think it's a very healthy thing. I take one day off every single week of my instrument. And sometimes when I'm running these programs, I might take a week off in between the programs and just enjoy playing etudes. So I'm someone who embraces these kinds of ideas. The point of this whole episode is that deliberate practice is how we get better. So if you are engaged in practice because your desire is to improve, your practice should be characterized by what we talked about on this episode. That's all I'm saying. If you don't care about improving, do whatever you want. But if you are motivated to see progress, to reach goals... The stuff we talked about in this episode will be important for you to consider. That's it, all right? Just trying to make sure I'm very clear because, um, you know, everyone's got... I mean, and it's fair. I'm not... It's very fair, but everyone has we all have baggage about practicing. We have baggage about we worked hard, things didn't work out. Or again, some people got burnt out and um, it just didn't work out. And so we have these negative associations and I'm not trying to just gloss over that. And I'm not trying to be like a very intense person that's like, nothing matters. Like you just got to do the work, whether, you know, I'm not this kind of person. Achievement above all is not really my M.O., I mean, it used to be my MO, but it's not my MO now. But there's no way around that if you want to become an expert at something, a hel- like I and a great deal of this kind of work is necessary. So, hopefully that makes sense. Um right. So, basically that's like kind of the whole that's the meat of the discussion. We could go into some uh, we could go into some other types of discussion about deliberate practice, but to be honest, I feel like this is a lot of information, and uh, I I have a feeling I'm going to make a little bit of a shift here in the way I make content, in the podcast especially when I interview people, and I'm I really feel like I'm going to be very interested in trying to understand various people's mental mental representations, how they go about practicing deliberately you know not just not just structure like i've been so obsessed with structure for a while how did you practice these excerpts how did you organize these excerpts and i got a lot of really amazing information out of that but i think it's time to dig into how people actually make decisions in their practice sessions how do they interpret they say okay i played this excerpt i went back and listened to the recording how do i under how do i know what i'm hearing on the recording is right or if it's wrong how do i how do i know what that means for what i do next i want to try to provide some of this information because i think we'll all benefit from hearing expert performers talk about how they interpret data so um yeah i think that's it for now Um, I really really am obsessed with this. I don't know if that comes through. (laughs) I'm very passionate about it. So I hope this was a helpful or useful episode for you. Um, if you want to hear more about this kind of stuff, uh, you know, you can reach out to me on my website, that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Um, let me know if you, like I said, you want to hear more about deliberate practice or you have questions about deliberate practice. Um, if there are other topics you want me to cover, please let me know there. If there are any other guests that you think I should interview, especially if you if you know of someone out there that's like... Preaches this kind of stuff, and I'm not aware of them. I want to know who they are so I can interview them. I'm I'm well aware that I only know what I know, and so there may be somebody out there who's already answered all these questions, and I just don't know about it. So, uh, if you are if you know about that, please, please, please reach out and let me know and and get me in contact with them so I can interview them and learn from them. I think the next thing is, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, consider giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, that would help out a lot. And also, don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it. Brandon Yokum always does amazing work on the podcast, and so I want to say thank you to Brandon uh, for doing such great work. And finally, I want to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. See you next time.